This is Geek Gab with your host, John and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, September 8th, 2018. We are live with P. Alexander, the editor of one of the best new pulp-oriented magazines out there, Cursova Magazine. But before we get to uh, Mr. Alexander, who is so gracious to come on the show again. How was your week, man? Hello. It was pretty good. Short week, thanks to Labor Day. I did a lot of sleeping, a lot of gaming, a lot of eating. Sounds familiar? I, uh, I, have, I, have I spoken about my, my latest board gaming obsession? Not Gloomhaven? It's not Gloomhaven. The, the thing is, I needed to find a new obsession because Gloomhaven has defaulted to my game for the weekends. Uh, I've been playing a lot of Terraforming Mars. Have you ever heard of this? I have not. Well, it's it's a bit of a long game, two hours or so. It's got a great board with a picture of Mars, and it's a mix between a board game and a card game. There's lots of cards, and some of them have nice space art, and some of them just have photographs. And it's got the appearance of a well-researched game where the people who wrote the things that happened really researched what it might take to terraform Mars. Obviously, it's a whole science fiction idea, but hey, if it were possible, what would it look like? And that's all I'll say about that without getting really nerdy, but it's it's a lot of fun and really engaging, even for just two players. Um, I have some news that you might not have picked up on. We had a brand strange new technical difficulty last week of one we've never had before. Uh, I was broadcasting from my phone last week because I was out in the boonies. Um, and when they started the show, it took about 40 seconds for my phone to get the message that we were live. So the first 40 seconds of the show were just dead air, me uh, waiting for me to talk. So I went back later because you can do this on YouTube and edited out those 40 seconds of sound, literally 40 seconds out of the entire hour and 10 minute show. Not only did it take four to five hours, four to five hours for YouTube to edit the video in situ, it also deleted live chat from last week. It's gone. Unbelievable. So. That that amount of incompetence is staggering. <laughs> it's awesome. I'm just like, holy Hannah, if I'd known this is going to be such a pain in the rear, I might not have done it. Yeah, just make everybody listen to 40 seconds of silence. But see, usually, it, my experience in the past has been if there's a few seconds of silence at the beginning, they just cut it out automatically. They start playing right from where people start talking. They, they don't play dead air, but not this show. So they do hate us. Yes. Um, I have lots of things that happened this week that I perhaps could talk about, but I don't want to. What I want to do is, is invite our guest onto the show. Mr. P. Alexander, say hi to all the folks watching. Hi, all the folks watching. I knew that was coming. <laughs> it's good to have you on, Mr. Alexander. Do, do we do we call you? Uh, can I call you P or or Palexander? Uh, Alex works. 
Fantastic. That and was we got one of our regulars set up in the chat, Mr. Misha Burnett. Misha Burnett in the chat saying hello. Who, uh, Misha Burnett, who created the Eldritch Earth setting, I believe, uh, which is one of the one of my favorite things to come out of Crossover Magazine. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, really good stuff. Uh, Misha is probably one of my. He's definitely up there, one of my favorites of the crop of writers that we've found. And if you uh, haven't checked out his uh, Book of Lost Doors stuff, oh my God. I, I want to I do something real quick. Because yeah. while we were in the green room before the show, you related an anecdote that you thought you didn't have uh, time, maybe have time to get to on the show. But I want to leap off of the anecdote. So I want you to tell it because I want to remake the same comment I made in okay. the green room. And Jeffro's going to love this, because Jeffro's here. <laughs> uh, right before the show, I was dropping off uh, several boxes of books we'd, we'd uh, been collecting to eventually get rid of at some point. We uh, Friends had given us books. I'd had some old books. We found some books on the curbside. When somebody in the neighborhood died, they had a whole bunch of really cool old uh, young adult books, juveniles, like not Bobsy twins, but a lot of Hardy boys, Rover boys, that, that type of thing. So we took the box of boxes of books up to the local bookstore to try to get some trade in, see if they were worth anything. And some of the things that I was trying to get rid of were several of my Ursula K. Le Guin hardbacks because I was never going to reread them. And he passed on those, didn't even comment on them. And I'm like, what about the, the Ursula K. Le Guin suck? Some of it was vintage. One of it's uh, the Heinish trilogy from the 70s. And he tells me, Ursula K. Le Guin doesn't sell. Nobody buys her. <laughs> this is why that tickled my funny bone. Uh, not just that, you know, that's amusing from, a, from the standpoint of the pulp revolution, but that I keep on seeing uh, other people online, on Twitter, follow the 1970s sci-fi art account who tweets out pictures of cover art from the 1970s and concept art and things like that for, for science fiction and fantasy. So not romance, not horror, science fiction and fantasy. So I've seen a lot of these covers, and it strikes me as astounding that the people who wrote these books expected them, expected them to be popular, expected an audience to buy them. I don't know who the hell they thought were going to buy stuff like this. There's a, and I apologize, kind of be naming some living authors who, if they hear about this, might get irritated. There's a Gordon R. Dixon book called The Right to Arm Bears which is about a bunch of bears who get sentient and they give them guns. Um, and there's like a revolution. So I haven't read the book. But who thought, what editor in their right mind thought and said, this is gold. We will publish this and it will be a hit. So An editor who might have been a furry. Um, and then there is... I believe it's Eric's Flint's Bats, Vats, and Cats. Who the hell thought that would be a good title for a book? Oh, no. Um, and there's a sequel where it's 
bats, vets, and something else acts. I, I don't know what it is. Um, it sounds like it's, a parody. It sounds like a parody account you might find on Facebook or Twitter. Yeah. Like, like I, I expect to see that title on a Sega CD game. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like one of those crappy mini games that you get in a in a collection of here's fifty eight random mini games, um, on one cartridge that you buy. Who who? What the hell happened to science fiction and fantasy writers of the sixties and seventies and eighties and fifties for many of them that they thought these books would be sellable. They thought these books would reach astounding new heights, would bring new people into the genre, would be fun and exciting. I mean, Harry Harrison writes a lot of pedantic, dry, atheist, condescending BS in his books. Even so, he's got a book series called The Stainless Steel Rat which is about the last super criminal in the galaxy in an era in which people can be have their brains redone so that they eliminate all criminal tendencies he is the last criminal in the galaxy the stainless steel rat it's an interesting name it's an interesting concept and even though he's you know has a lot of condescending stuff in there you could see how that might appeal to an audience. He's got another series that's called Death World. Death World. Obviously a title that can at least grab people. It's a, The very first one is about a planet that all of the creatures on it evolve hyper quick, and they're all evolving to kill human beings. And it's a great little book. I don't understand the people who made stuff that you look at and say, this is obviously not going to sell. You guys need to stop with this boring pedantic crap and get back to the stuff that excited audiences, that thrilled audiences. And it is astounding to me that that did not happen. Save perhaps for the Star Wars and Star Trek novels um, which themselves had quite a lot of clunkers and boring stuff in there. But the reason why this is topical is because that is exactly the opposite of what Kursova magazine does. Oh, man, am I supposed to follow that up? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't a setup for me. <laughs> oh, well, you know, uh, we just... I don't know how many people remember... Uh, Brad Torgerson's Nutty Nuggets, the whole if if you want to sell the idea of awesome sci-fi, you know you gotta you gotta have what's in the box the same as what's on the box. Yes. Well, you know, I feel like even even so, we weren't getting the Nutty Nuggets, and I wanted to find and deliver some Nutty Nugget Nuggets to some folks. Man, that that's hard to say more than once. Nutty Nuggets. God, that's <laughs> terrible. I like that. I'm, I'm going to put that on my, that's my new, uh, <laughs> that's my new personal quote on Twitter. I, I want to deliver nutty nuggets to my, to my fans. The Alexander 2018. So what is it that you look for in a story that makes you think this is not going to bore the audience? Uh, well, 
the the simple way of doing it is uh, finding and buying stories that aren't boring. But uh, that's that's a little oversimplified. But uh, a few about a year and a half back, one of the things that I was doing when I was going through my slush pile, there was a spin-off TV series based on the Anne of Green Gables books. And if the story I was reading was not interesting enough to keep me from being distracted by the Anne of Green Gables Gaiden series, <laughs> then it got thrown out. <laughs> I like that. That's a What I'm thinking is, and we were talking about this on Twitter. Um, you have, are you will be opening submissions soon for an issue that's going out in the spring of next year? Yes, October first. And, and you have been, um, you have been concerned in the past at the fact that the. The standards you set forth that you think are very, very clear. These are the kind of stories you're, we're looking for. You get a lot of people who just don't seem to pay attention to that. You know, I think one of the problems is I'm looking for stories in the vein of certain authors to where if you have not read those authors, if you are not familiar with them, you can see the descriptions of the stories that I'm looking for and still just 100% miss the mark. And one of the reasons why I've kind of tried to change the direction for next year and tried to tweak some of the the uh, submission guidelines some is because I've, I've been reading more old pulp stuff. I've been reading different pulp stuff. And I'll tell you now, one of the biggest differences is when I first started and between now is I had not yet read the best of CL Moore. And a lot of the stuff that's in that is stuff that I would love to see more of and love to get more of. And the standard heroic fantasy ray gun romance doesn't really quite get what I'm looking for. Cause what I'm, what I'm also wanting to include is stuff like the bright illusion or black thirst. A lot of people will talk about how great Chamblo is, but black thirst, that level of just visceral horror in your ray gun sci-fi isn't something that you see very often. And that's um, something I'd like to, to be able to include a little bit more of. And you're going to start to see it. Anybody who's read uh, Kursova number nine is going to see it a bit more in some of the, the a little bit more outside the box stuff that we got, uh, including our copy editor's story, The Orb of Zarkax, which it is sword and sorcery, but it's not heroic fantasy it's a little bit more of the weird a little bit vancian a little bit howardian uh, um and, and let's go let, let's step aside for just half a second okay. i've read uh all of the Gerald of joy stories uh from, by cl moore and i've read i believe all of her um northwestern smith stories um yeah including shamblo and including the black thirst um, and what is notably different about C.L. Moore than the other writers at the time is she is 
a woman. And her story, her stories are written such that the challenges, the obstacles, and the way around those obstacles are very feminine. Um, and that's not an insult. That's not saying anything is wrong with uh, C.L. Moore because they're brilliant stories. They're stories in a completely different vein than people would expect if they just took the stereotype of sword and sorcery. But whereas yeah. Conan has very masculine solutions to his problems, obviously, Jewel uh, of Jury and uh, you know her other stories have very feminine solutions to very feminine problems that nonetheless are sword and sorcery that nonetheless are very very disturbing. Well, um, and, uh, you, you bring up Conan, and even though I love Robert E. Howard, I kind of spoiled myself because I read the Call stuff before I read any Conan, and Call is it's a lot more cerebral. It's it's darker it's it's stories that really make you think it's 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 not quite what you normally would think of with sword and sorcery and that's one of the reasons why he ended up going with conan because sword and sorcery of that more heroic going in slashing things with swords and fighting the monsters is more what was selling um and so is is what you're looking for when you say you want something like the black thirst does that mean you want like a ray gun story with horror elements underneath it that can't necessarily be solved by because i mean let, let's be honest um northwestern smith is pretty much the archetype from which han solo was derived he is yeah, yeah. the or originator of all of that roguish blaster carrying space adventurer that uh, han solo basically copied um it is and i'm not you know, I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm not trying to accuse George Lucas of doing anything untoward. But if you think about it like this, and if I can, you know, simplify it uh, a bit and tell me if I'm wrong or, and if I am wrong, where I am. A story, the various, you know, stories of Northwestern Smith are Han Solo meets ex-ancient evil. So they're Han Solo horror stories, in a sense. Yeah, that, that, that is a good way to put it. And so are you looking for more Han Solo horror stories? Are you looking just for like any of the typical ray gun, like maybe Luke Skywalker, uh, uh, you know, bright, happy, shiny kid who then gets involved in the uh, sucked into the horror? Uh, to an extent, but it, it has more to do with wanting to broaden the scope of the sort of pulp stories that we're looking back on. Good examples of one of the, the series that we've published before would be uh, Michael Reese's Clock Stories. They, they're pulpy, they're occult detective, they're occult mystery, but they don't have that modern urban horror modern new pulp vibe to them and one of the things i just really want to do is i want to be open to just beyond the ray gun romance beyond just the sword and sorcery i want people to give me some things that are new and different i don't want to just get like a swordsman goes in and fights a monster and that's it don't want a guy with a ray gun who fights a monster and, and that's it you know i'm looking for looking to expand into to more of the weird tales 
aspect of the pulp beyond just the planet stories and uh, the the sword and sorcery revival stuff of the 70s. So you've been getting a lot of submissions that are basically D&D stories. You've been getting a lot of submissions that are basically Conan pastiches. Uh, and you've been getting a lot of, of uh, submissions that are, um, you know, more or less stereotypical Reagan stories. And what you want to do for this next volume is to get further afield than just those specific areas. And, and I, as far as I know, you haven't printed any of the D&D stories. Um, but you want to get your submissions to cast a wider net than those. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, I'm not saying like slipstream, but like just the whole notion that you can include lots of different elements. Right now, and I'm going to make you guys jealous, I'm reading a new novelette by Skylar Hernstrom, and it's got wizards, spaceships made of crystals, and it's going to blow your mind. Um, I'm trying to think at... So what you're really saying to people who want to... Um, want to, you know, submit stories is that they should throw their minds open to wider... Um, inspiration to wilder types of stories than maybe is the norm today. To an extent, yeah. And, and like I said, I, I have included a list of authors, a recommended reading list of you should have at least read a few of these authors if you want to write and submit something to us to give you an idea of what we're looking for. And uh, some of the stuff is is stuff that's kind of off the wall even in our circles like i'm a huge fan of thomas burnett swan he is an author that i found from that site good show sir that if you haven't checked it out you absolutely need to check it out what it is is a repository of photos of terrible 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 paperback sci-fi and fantasy covers from the 50s through the 80s. And we're not just talking about ridiculous Bane stuff or Daw. There's some really weird stuff in there. But one of the books I saw was one by uh, Thomas Burnett Swan. So I was familiar with the name and I picked up a stack of books for really cheap of his and I was just blown away by them. They got sort of marketed as fantasy science fiction. It was published by Daw, but the whole conceit is cozy pastoral romances in antiquity in which all of the myths are true. Herodotus didn't make anything up. The Myrmidons are literally Ant-Men. There is outside of the Etruscan village, a town of centaurs that you don't screw with because centaurs are assholes. There are tritons. Tritons might sometimes kidnap you, or you might fall in love with a triton. Or if you're running away from Egypt, you might be pursued by sphinxes and find yourself on the Isle of Crete, where there are sexy minotaurs who end up being your best friend and saving you from the evil Egyptian sphinxes that pursued you across the Mediterranean. I mean, it's just weird, crazy stuff, and I love it. But it's not what anybody really thinks of as either typical fantasy or science fiction, even though it was being published by a publisher who 
published that sort of stuff. Um, let me uh, let me step back for a moment. Um, so I, I want to be. Uh, I think I've noticed something that, that kind of worries me. I love your magazine. I want you to to continue publishing it, and so I've noticed something that kind of uh, worried me about the most recent Kickstarter. Um, am I wrong, or is it getting harder and harder to to fulfill or to get people to kickstart money for Kursova? Uh, it's it's just a, it's largely been a case, I think, of crowdfunding exhaustion. Everybody is crowdfunding everything these days, and it's just it's not easy to get people to lay down money for things. And one of the things about fiction anthologies, especially periodicals, is that it's a lot of reading material and a lot of people don't necessarily get through a lot of reading material. And so even though we have had some growth and we have had a lot of really consistent supporters, it's hard to sell a science fiction magazine. Uh, I think it was a uh, guy from, might've been uh, Clark from Clark's world who's saying, I can't figure out how to sell science fiction. Somebody, if somebody knows how, let me know. In the meantime, donate to our Patreon. <laughs> Um, what is it that you think going forward in the future looking at funding the next uh, few magazines past these what is it you're um, looking at to try and address that situation uh, I'm not really sure at this point uh, I'm looking at Indiegogo for a future project but honestly if I didn't have to I would not use Kickstarter or crowdfunding at all. If there was a viable subscription platform besides Patreon, which I don't really consider viable for, for what I'm doing and I just don't want to be involved with them, I would use it. Uh, at one point, I think uh, uh, Newquist was talking about putting together a some sort of subscription platform, but I don't know that, that uh, if he's made any headway on that. He actually, uh, Russell Newquist, uh, he's been on the show before. He he actually works on is working on the publishing side of it, isn't he? Is, is he, uh, yeah, he's, he's got the Silver Empire, and um, I don't remember if that's the name of his press off the top of my head, and I and my connection is bad enough that I don't want to go to another tab to double check. But yeah, he, he, he publishes a lot of stuff. He's published anthologies. Uh, a couple Kursova authors have also been published by him. Yeah, that sounds like the way to go. If you do want to get off of Kickstarter, uh, you'll have to, you have to set up your own uh, stateside publishing house, uh, sort of go the way of, of uh, I, I hate to mention it, but uh, go the way of Castalia house. Uh, you know, set, try to set up your own infrastructure because uh, otherwise, I don't think you're going to be able to get away from crowdsourcing. Here's yeah. a, well, 
Oh, go ahead, Warpig. Here's a thesis I want to put out there, um, just to get your reactions or reactions of people in the chat. Um, the big names in science fiction hitherto um, have driven people away from short fiction markets. People are not used to reading short stories. They don't really know them because most of the short stories are um, boring or nasty or offensive or whatever. So that's one aspect of short stories being a difficult sell. They've also done the same thing for science fiction. A lot of science fiction is garbage uh, that is deliberately repugnant, deliberately, you know, anti-Christian, whatever, deliberately embraces vices and, and vile behavior. So that's another thing that drove normies away just from science fiction in general, not just short stories in specific. And at the same time, the writers who are producing the kind of work you're looking for have not yet matured to the point where they are reaching a breakout audience. Um, even, you know, Sky Hernstrom, whoever, um, they haven't yet broken out to a large audience of normies, which is what it takes to bring in enough money to make things like this viable. So my thesis is that the magazines of old, uh, Weird Tales, whatever, the magazines of the, the pre-1938 um, publishing world, they succeeded based on both their reputation as a magazine and based on um, having and publishing stories from wildly popular authors who wrote stories that a lot of people loved and wanted to read. And I don't think we've gotten to the point yet where we're producing enough stuff of high enough quality that it reaches a broad enough audience to um, to make it easier to publish a magazine like that. And I think it, it may get easier down the line. Well, and one of the things that I think a lot of people don't quite realize with the whole self-publishing thing is that, yeah, you can self-publish, but there are so many layers in the process required to put out the level of quality that mainstream normies think of. And I mean, all the authors that I've worked with, even the best ones, can all use copy editors, developmental editors. It helps being able to put together a cover. I'm okay, I guess, as a developmental editor, but when you're editing a magazine, you don't really have time to hold hands and get a story to exactly where it needs to be for someone to say, oh yeah, that's that story is just perfect. And uh, a lot of people, because it costs money to get someone to edit books, to do copy uh, editing and proofreading on books, they skip that route and people see their stuff and it's like, well, it's kind of a mess. There are typos. There's dramatically incorrect stuff like who missed this? How did it get missed? Well, it gets missed because stuff just gets missed. You can have three, four people going through some and stuff will still get missed. But if you don't have anybody going through it and somebody sees it, they're just like, whoa, why did I even bother? This is just a waste. And so once, but once you get a critical mass, I think they're, there gets to be an infrastructure where people are spending enough money on stories that authors can spend the money necessary to make their work worth buying by the larger public. 
Okay, I'm going to go in a strange direction here, and it's going to get big and philosophical, and you're just going to have to put up with that audience. I'm sorry. Wealth in a society is not the money they've got. A society that has enough um, excess production to support people who don't have to farm directly can now have universities, can now have professors, can now have, you know, whatever. A lot of people who are not doing things that directly contribute to other people um, to other people surviving. The more wealth your society has, the more different things you can do because you have enough to live off of and you have enough to meet people's needs. So I'm gonna take that sideways now and move into the comic market. The wealth of the money coming into comics in the 1980s was enough money to support many different people who weren't directly producing comics who were nonetheless doing very, very good work, necessary work. Editors, um, editors-in-chief organizing things, people looking for new artists, people trying to bring artists and writers along, whatever. The more money that drains out of the comics industry, the less you can afford to support those ancillary people in addition to creators who are nonetheless critical for the comics. Less wealth means less ability to support people who are necessary but who don't directly produce income generation. So in a, in a like in a computer company, in a computer software company, that would be Q&A, customer support, um, you know, tech support. So those are people who do not directly contribute code, do not directly uh, contribute to shipping a product, but whose presence is nonetheless vital. The less money you have coming in, the more you have to skimp on those things. The comics industry is shrinking. And so they're having to fire a bunch of those people. And at some point, they will have driven away so many uh, members of the audience, the whole thing, the whole house of cards is just going to collapse. Um, and stores are going to go out of business on masse. There's going to be a lot of bad, bad stuff. This holocaust of the collapse has already happened in the short science fiction market. And what I've been predicting for comics is even if you get a new generation of people who spurn all of the ideological reasons that, that are destroying comics and want to get back to the audience, they're going to find it a tough go because they're going to have to start from ground zero little by little by little building up the infrastructure again getting enough money coming in earn an audience again and that is the position that will happen in the future for comics probably is the exact position where we are at right now for short fiction markets there are not enough readers there are not enough people willing to spend money on magazines to support the infrastructure necessary to make a really really and great magazine and the thing is, is there are there are people who are willing to spend money once, but they get burned by a lot of projects. One yes. of the, the big projects that made a huge splash a couple of years back was Skelos. Skelos was supposed to be this big deal. They were going to get all these big name new weird fiction writers. It was going to be like the new big weird fiction magazine. I think they got something like $20,000, $25,000 to make it. And... They ended up with lots of delays. After the first issue, they accidentally put out a second issue that didn't have the final edited text. So the first print edition had all of the typos and stuff. The third edition or the third issue came out months and months and months late. 
And now the project has been silent for about a year and I'm kicking myself for dropping a hundred bucks on a lifetime subscription because they're going for 15 bucks print on demand on Amazon. Um, so that, that's my thesis is that we are in what they call, you know, charitably in football, a rebuilding season where you're not going to win, you're not going to win a championship, you're not even going to win most games. You're just trying to bring on some new, fresh talent and keep them playing long enough to where they can develop their abilities so that next season, the season after that, um, you might have uh, a good enough team to make a championship. We're in the rebuilding season in science fiction, short fiction. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the, the good things about where Kursova's at going into our fourth year, I think. Yeah, we're going to be going in our fourth year next year, is that we spent the last three years developing a pool of writers and talent. So I'd like to think that the writers that we have been working with are getting better. The stories that they're sending in are getting better and readers are getting familiar with them. So even though we're going to be bringing in some new people, we definitely want to get in some of the old and some of the, the fan favorites who we've been giving a place to improve. We've been able to be a proving ground for several artists who've published uh, three, four stories with us. Um, I think there's been a lot of talk about uh, getting people to buy in and, and stay bought in, but I was thinking uh, along those lines when Daddy Warbrick was talking earlier, where the buyers, where where did that market go? I think it's and, and my theory is, I think everybody can probably agree that all the readers of short fiction are consuming television or live streams or something these days. Or movies or... Yeah, I, well, not movies. Not necessarily movies. I, I was thinking more along the lines of, of episodic TV shows, that's, that sort of thing. I think if that if that market's still there and and that means that we're in a really big opportunity right now you, know, you you call it a rebuilding phase but that's a market that can be recaptured because we've seen evidence of that in the way netflix and amazon have been recapturing that tv audience fewer people own tv fewer people watch tv than they did probably 10 years ago if we can if we can recapture that audience and reclaim it for lack of a better word for uh, fiction for actual writing uh, that would be a that would be a win for society and specifically for the publishers of that fiction. Here's, uh, here's how money coming into a, a magazine works. You need to earn enough money on your magazine, not just not just to keep publishing it, but to bribe great authors into writing the kind of stories you want to publish. You have to have enough money so that you can pay high enough rates so that working authors who could make a living off of writing novels and only writing novels are, are willing to spend the time to write a short story. Larry Correa mentions about short stories that he has to have a short story get published in at least three different places, three different times before he makes any money off of it. So every short story he makes is dead time for him. It's something that he's doing that he's not earning any money on and won't earn money on for four or five years um, or more, maybe ever. So the way the economy works is that money is a bribe to persuade people to do what it is you want them to do, to produce the kind of work you want them to produce. So you have to have enough money coming in as an editor. 
to be able to say, here are our stories, and authors are going to say, oh, let me go write a short story. You know what? Normally I wouldn't have, but I can make enough money right now to make it profitable, to make it worth my time. If it takes me an hour to write a short story, and I'll earn as much or more from that hour as I would from uh, an hour's worth of writing whatever novel is next, then it's worth it for me to take time off and write a short story. You have to reach that point, and this goes back to the wealth thing I was talking about earlier. You have to reach that point where you can bribe big name authors to focus their talents in a slightly different direction and have them write for you. Um, and obviously, we are nowhere near close to that yeah. uh, yet. Well, I got lucky with Adrian Cole because he's uh, one of one of Doc Morgan's buddies, and so he got pointed in my direction around the same time I'd been reading the Dream Lord. So, so he's kind of our our big name from back in the day, who's been writing short stories for us. I uh, and see when I'm when I'm talking about this again, I'm thinking of people like you know, Larry Correa, who may very well be interested in weird fiction and writing weird fiction stories. He's written, certainly written enough things that are, uh, Larry just does not get genre lines. He doesn't know how to uh, implement them in the stories. And whenever he runs into them, he gets, uh, you know, he, he gets upset and bashes it to pieces and <laughs> writes whatever the hell he wants. So that's exactly the kind of author that could make sto stories that fit in with the Kursova. We, just, just aren't making enough money yet to make it worth yeah. Larry's while to write for the magazine. And then you can't just build an entire magazine around one author. You know, you want to also have your your you know your headliners. You want to have a stable of consistent producers of quality, and then you want to have like your farm team of, of new guys yeah. coming up and developing all that. Just takes a lot of time. Well, because I, I know that uh, Superversive got some really big names for their Astounding Frontiers, but. But even that, uh, I gather, wasn't enough to, to keep it going for more than a few issues. Um, Astounding Frontiers, their problem um, is that they got caught up in the Castalia House ghetto, that Amazon was only recommending their books to people who bought Castalia House's stable of authors. And not being part of that stable of authors meant that their magazine wasn't getting, uh, wasn't getting recommended to anybody. And nobody heard of it, and so it was cut off. I, um, I want to say this in a way that doesn't make it seem like I'm trying to be a jerk about this. Um, back on the superversive mailing list, I started calling it the Castalia House Ghetto and started pointing out that there were a lot of ghettos. I was basing my ideas off of Nick Cole's and Jason Onspot's work in Launching Galaxy's Edge. I took a bunch of screenshots uh, and then sent them to Brian. He put up a post about it, and that's where it kind of, uh, it kind of broke that people started talking about ghettos in the Amazon sense. And so Astounding Frontiers fell into this ghetto and they had to quit publishing after five issues. Uh, they got five issues out. I don't know if they handed it over to someone else, but they did hand over you know, their sci-fi imprint over to someone else. Um, it was unfortunate, but they got caught up in being marketed to people who weren't interested in their magazine and only those people. And so they never had a chance to really get a big audience. Um, and at the same time, I'm not sure that a lot of the people, a lot of the people they published were big names, but they weren't really writing pulp stories. They were writing modern sci-fi stories. Not bad, not you know corrupt and vile, but still very, very much hard science stories. And most hard SF is 
is just too dry for mainstream audiences. So, have I astounded people? Have I destroyed the conversation? Um, oh no! Let me let me pivot for a second, because um, I I was just... I want to offer some very very mild comments, but go ahead first. Oh, I was just catching up with chat. Uh, they're still complaining about short fiction in Dragon Magazine, the the D and D uh, fiction. Is that the worst or what? I um I will admit that I've not read a lot of the Dungeons and Dragons fiction, and when I did read it, I was very very young, so I have no idea how I would react to it today. So, um, Mike. I, I don't know that I've ever read any of the stuff published in Dragon. I, I want to make this critique very, very politely and softly and gently, and I don't, I don't think it's necessary that you give a response on the air. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Tear, um, pig. Tear it off. As far as writing a short fiction magazine goes, Everything you do with the public face of the magazine, the trade dress, the graphic design, the font choices, the art choices, the title of the magazine, all of that stuff has to be fine-tuned and optimized to drive people to read your magazine. It has to be true in the sense that all of that stuff gives them an idea of what will be in the magazine, but it also has to be exciting and enticing. The name of your magazine is advertisement. The cover of your magazine is an advertisement, just like it is for books. Uh, you know, Nicole, and who says this, who got it from Brian Niemeyer, who got it from somebody else, um, that 80% of the buying decision when it comes to a book on Amazon is cover related. They have to see a cover that they like. That's 80% of the buying decision. So the fonts and used and things like that. So I think my humble opinion is that that's got to be kind of the basis, the, the foundation that you build a magazine off of is crafting and honing all those elements so they fit in with the feel of the magazine, with what you're wanting to publish and sell. And I don't think that currently Kursova magazine is set up to do that well. Uh, well, we may have painted ourselves into some corners over the years. Um, so I'd, if, if I were to make one suggestion is to Think about how the magazine is sold to readers and try to switch things up so that it is um, so that you maximize the uh, the enticement, the attractiveness of the magazine to draw more readers in. I think that I'm not saying that would fix everything, but I think that is a, 
that's advice that I would offer to anybody in the pulp revolution who is looking at selling books to people. Pick your title, your cover font, your picture, uh, the description in Amazon, um, all of those things, and then the content, make sure they all match the content, but also make sure they are as attractive as possible to future audience members and keep on trying to improve your skills at picking that um, as well, you produce more and more books. One thing that I would note about our uh, cover appearance is that the font was very specifically chosen because it is the font that is used in old D&D modules. Yes. Um. I don't know, that, that's just the identify an audience for your work, whatever it is. And this is not directed at you, mind you. This is still the any, anybody who's listening is writing books the pulp revolution. Identify what audience your books is aimed at, your book is aimed at, and do your very, very best to make sure that your um, all the elements of your work that are public facing before they start reading it, the cover, the font, everything, that it appeals as much as possible to that audience, that it is as appealing as possible to that audience. So you make them excited, you make them interested, and you make them want to, you know, click on the book and uh, and then buy it and read it. So um, again, I apologize. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm not trying to put you down or, or you know, harangue you or make any bad feelings about it. I just I'm sorry, we're, um, we're used to a Daddy War Pig. Remember that one time we had Bradford Walker on the show and, and he had to sit there while you delivered the most effective rant on authors ever? <laughs> what, like two weeks ago, three weeks ago? <laughs> oh, those were the days. Um, so anyways, what, uh, what do you have upcoming? Do you have anything yet, other than the Sky Hernstrom novella, do you have anything yet for upcoming that would, um, you know, what the audience's appetite? Uh, well, that you can some... talk about. If you can't talk about, that's okay. Talk about we... what's out right now in nine and ten. If if that if you can. Well, uh, nine nine is out now. Ten is going to be out in a couple months. Uh, ten is going to have some Misha Burnett. We got some more of Jim Brayfogle's Mongoose and Meerkat, which is a uh, sword and sorcery rogue duo it's kind of like Fafford and Grey Mouser only the characters are a bit more likable but it, it's in that sort of vein of here are two roguish adventurers who are in this ridiculous situation that they're trying to make a little money out of uh, we've got a really really awesome story coming up in number 10 Crying in the Salt House by B. Morris Allen I I think I maybe I I think I think I maybe should have put it in issue nine because that's sort of the story that I'm looking for more of. Just really weird, dark fantasy that's really visceral in its horror. Uh, issue nine has also got some of those those weird outside the box things I'm looking for. The the cover story is one that 
I was a little bit iffy on it first, but the more I read it, I, I was just like, I absolutely love this idea. It's a circus whose hierarchy is kind of structured in classical Japanese court society, and they're stranded and out of money on a planet inhabited by tentacle monsters, and they have to make enough money from performing for these tentacle monsters or they're going to run out of oxygen because they won't have enough money to keep the life support on. And it's just a really weird, really cool novel idea that I just loved it. And that, that was our cover story for this, this fall issue. All right. Well, um, yeah, I want to, I want to change subjects for a moment. I just, yeah. uh, speaking, speaking of pulp rev, uh, we're just talking with our good friend John Della Rose today. Johnny, uh, Johnny, Johnny. Johnny, yeah. If you get if you head to his uh, website dellarose.com, he's got a cover reveal for his latest steampunk novel. And and the cover reveal is real cool. But I'm not I'm not trying to advertise for that. John Della Rose, nor anybody else, is able to post a link to this blog post on Twitter. It's it's being filtered right now. Isn't that something? Um, according to one of the posts on Twitter, uh, his blog is being linked uh, is being listed as an unsafe blog. So people aren't allowed to post it. It's uh, they're putting in the same calorie as malware blogs. Well, he did he did say his his blog got hacked recently. So it could be Twitter doing weird stuff like that. It could be Twitter banning his blog like they did to Vox, but War Pigs Law on Twitter? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it could be normal functionality, but you'd never know. Yeah. It is, uh, it is reprehensible. And as far as I know, if it is deliberate on Twitter, they do a very thorough job of checking even like bit.li and all of the other URL shorteners um, that maybe could mask a URL. They actually make the extra effort of making sure you're not masking something that they have, um, that they have blocked. It's really, 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 uh, I want to say Orwellian. Kafkaesque, um, and it's very, very unpleasant. Uh, well, that's that's Twitter for you, making making advertising and, and reaching out to people easier and harder at the same time. So uh, it looks like Delarose.com is being lost has been listed in uBlock Origin. Uh, on their list of malware domains. Um, so, so nothing sinister other than some jerk actually hacking his site. So pick your passwords carefully, people, and change them often as possible, uh, often as practical. Um, use a password manager program um, so that when you do change your password, you don't have to keep on remembering five or six versions of it but yeah if some jerk hijacks your um 
if some jerk hijacks your blog and then sticks malware on it, you can be blamed for that and blackballed forever. So. Well, that's all I got. Tiffany, uh, any last thoughts before we head out? Well, it was great chatting with you guys. Thanks for finally being able to make it on the show, Alexander. Uh, oh, man, I'm glad I was able to get my box to where I could do this. <laughs> oh, um, by the way, to anybody listening later or listening live, uh, under the description of the video, I've got a link to Kursova on Amazon, which I believe and I hope, because Amazon doesn't make it easy to do this. I don't know why. I believe and I hope will take you to a list of all the Kursova magazines, all of the issues of Kursova, all nine of them that are available on Amazon, that link should be able to take you to where you can browse them and purchase them, and I encourage you to do so. Uh, I have uh, I've quite enjoyed the vast majority of uh, stuff in Kursova, and I'm looking forward to more of it. It is um, it's my favorite modern magazine. Um, so, you know, by all means, please please check that out. Do you have any other? Uh, and I'm asking you to check that out so that you'll spend money on Kursova so that it will financially support Kursova so that I can, I can have it producing the kind of fiction I want to read. It is purely selfish on my part. However, um, it also will produce stuff that you will want to read. So by buying Kursova, you also make things better for yourself. That's how this works. Do you have any last words, uh, Ms. Uh, Alex? Uh Get writing, submissions open October 1st. Check out issue nine. All right. Thanks for stopping by. Um, very much appreciated. We're glad your, uh, your computer situation has gotten to the point where you can join us and uh, other people. Um, and again, we very much appreciate you coming on the show. We also want to thank everybody in the chat uh, for contributing to the discussion there. This is Geek Gab for Saturday, September 8th, 2018. Um, you can get us on youtube.com slash geekgab or we're available on soundcloud.com we're available on the google play store and we're available on the itunes store just do a search for geek gab we uh and you can subscribe to us and listen to the show on the device of your choice and of course optimal listening conditions is to listen to the show saturday uh, about 2 p.m eastern usually where we have a live chat going on, you can come in and discuss things with the unusually intelligent and attractive members of the Geek Gab audience. We want to thank everyone for tuning in today. We are leaving you, but don't worry, don't you fret, we will be back.